Revelation 4. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and round the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Round the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And round the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all round and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honour and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. John writes, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Our God and Father, we thank you for revealing yourself to us in the Scriptures. And we ask that as we think about this part of your word together this evening, this prophecy, you would help us to listen to it, to hear you speak. You would help us to keep what is written in it. And so to be blessed, as you promise. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, let me begin with a question. Uh, who determines the course of history? Who determines the course of history? That might sound like a bit of an odd question. Perhaps what determines the course of history might sound a bit more reasonable. Because we can pinpoint events, can't we? We can pinpoint major conflicts or economic downturns, perhaps even worldwide pandemics. Events determine the course of history, don't they? Uh, don't get me wrong, people play their part in it. Sometimes they play a very important part in it. Think, for example, of William Wilberforce. He played a very significant role in the abolition of slavery in the UK. But even then, you couldn't pin all of that just on him. No one person determines the course of history. 
or do they? This evening, we're going to be thinking about one who claims to be just that person. The one who ultimately decides and governs where the whole of world history is headed. If you were here last week, we began a series in the book of Revelation. We saw that Revelation was written to seven real-life churches in first-century Turkey. And in the opening chapters of the book, it becomes clear that each of those churches are under various pressures. We'll touch on those later on. But as John writes this book, this letter, this prophecy, he does so to steady those churches, to keep them faithful all the way to the end. But when we reach chapter 4, we reach a turning point in the book. Because at the beginning of chapter 4, something pretty remarkable happens to our author John. He notices a door standing open into heaven, not something you see every day. And he hears a voice, the same voice that he'd heard back in chapter 1, sounding like a trumpet. It's the voice of Jesus himself. Come up here, says Jesus, chapter 4, verse 1, and I will show you what must take place after this. John's invited into heaven to see the course of history as it will play out. And as you read through the following chapters, that plan, the, the plan for the, the whole of history, is written down in a scroll. We read the contents of that scroll being unfurled in chapter 6 and the following chapters. But in chapter 4, we seem to press pause on all of that. We aren't told about the scroll. We aren't shown the unfolding events of human history. Instead, John lingers. He lingers on who and what he sees when he arrives in heaven. And very particularly, he tells us all about the one who, chapter 5, verse 1, holds the scroll in his right hand. Let me borrow an illustration from one commentator. Revelation 5 and onwards is about the movie script of world history. But in Revelation 4, we find out all about the one who wrote the screenplay or the director. The one who determines the course of history, what will ultimately happen to this world. That's who we're going to be thinking about together this evening. We'll do that under several headings. Those headings are on the back of the service sheet. You might find it helpful to have those open in front of you as we go along, as well as having the Bible open in front of you as we go along. First of those headings, the throne in heaven is occupied. Now, the first thing John sees as he arrives in heaven, verse 2, is a throne. And the throne is occupied. Just look down to verse 2 for a moment. At once, John writes, I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. Now, Richard Griffin was part of the Queen's protection detail for over 30 years, and he tells the story of being with her whilst she was out for a walk in her Balmoral estate, or nearby her Balmoral estate, I should say. And she was approached when she was walking by a group of American tourists. She was wearing a headscarf and a tweed coat at the time, and she was asked if she lived in the area. She said that she had a house close by, which is rather sweet. Even more sweetly, the response came back, 
Oh, have you met the Queen? She was asked uh, that question quite boldly by the tourists. No, she replied, before pointing to Griffin, but he has. Now, you would hope to recognize the Queen if you bumped into her. But even though you might recognize her, and even though you might respect her, she doesn't order world events, does she? At least not anymore. Her throne is largely ceremonial now. So it's possible when we read of a, a throne in Revelation chapter 4, we don't grasp the full weight of what's being described. See, the throne John sees isn't ceremonial. It conveys rule, total, absolute rule. And that point is made by the dominance of the throne throughout the whole chapter. I wonder if you noticed that as you read it a few moments ago. It appears 10 times in the vision in chapter 4 alone. Wherever John looks in heaven, he sees this throne. It's the reference point for everything else. The throne in heaven is occupied. Now, that might seem to be quite a simple conclusion to draw from such a rich chapter of the Bible. But I think it's worth spending a moment or two to unpack it. Let me return to the question I asked a few minutes ago. Who determines the course of world history? See, one of the reasons that might seem like a strange question is that our experience might lead us to think that the answer is no one. No one determines the course of history. When you look at the world around you, it often feels as though blind forces govern world events and even the events of our own lives. And if you don't believe me, just think of coronavirus. A seemingly random, mindless virus has brought entire countries to their knees, caused churches to stop meeting together, stopped you from seeing loved ones or going to school or to work, all from a random virus. And if you're persuaded that that's the case, you're persuaded that the course of history is random, that it's blind, well, it'll shape the way you live your life. Think, for example, of the seven churches John writes to. They're facing challenges. They're in danger of compromise, theologically and morally. They're in danger of being crushed by persecution. Now, if nothing determines the course of world history, the course of your history, but blind chance, then what does that do to your motivation to keep going? To keep going when you're up against it. The people who make life difficult for God's people seem to get away with it. Christians who compromise theologically or morally, and even those who try to get other Christians to do the same, they often seem no worse for having done so. And if the world's just freewheeling its way to nowhere, well then as a Christian who's struggling to remain faithful to Jesus, why not just join them? Wouldn't it be so much easier? Well, Revelation 4 shows us that there is one who determines the course of history, the one who holds the scroll. And he's the same one who occupies the throne in heaven. Now, that doesn't mean that the churches in Revelation will be able to avoid hardship and difficulty. It doesn't mean that we will either. But it gives them confidence that hardship wasn't endless. It wasn't meaningless. There will be a crown. 
There will be an eternity with the God of the universe for the one who conquers. He promises that in chapters 2 and 3 for the one who remains faithful to the end. There will be an ultimate reckoning for persecution. There will be an accounting for those who've twisted the truth about who God is. And we can be confident about that because we know there is one on the throne who will bring that to pass, who will make things right. The throne in heaven is occupied. So keep serving the one who occupies it. But it's worth saying that blind chance isn't the only possible answer to that question, is it? See, the churches John was writing to might not have been tempted to think that that blind forces or chance determines the course of history, but that Caesar did. At least the the, the history of the world as it pertained to them. Or maybe the, the Jewish authorities who held sway in their cities and towns. They're the ones who seem to hold all the cards. And the same is true today. Think of Christians living in northern Nigeria today, for example. Since 2015, there's been a surge in extremist violence in Nigeria. More than 6,000 Christians killed and over 2 million forced to flee their homes for safety. If you're a Christian living in northern Nigeria, who determines your future? Who holds the cards? Well, the extremists do, don't they? Now, we don't face anything like the same kind or level of persecution or difficulty in Scotland yet, but we might ask ourselves the same kind of question. Put it really simply, when you speak about Jesus, and it means that you fall down the promotional pecking order at work, or it leaves you out of favor in your office, maybe you don't need convincing that blind forces don't determine your future, but you need convincing that your boss doesn't. Well, the rest of chapter 4 shows us that the throne isn't just occupied. There isn't just a ruler on the throne. But that the one on the throne is absolutely unique. He's unlike any other pretender. And so his claim to being the Lord of history, his claim to being the Lord of your life, blasts any other claim right out the water. I'm going to think about that under our next two points. Firstly, the throne in heaven is the highest throne. Now, I wonder if you've ever witnessed a crime and been asked to provide a description of the perpetrator. I remember having to do that once and uh, quickly realizing how poor my observation skills and memory was. I think I managed to narrow the pool down to it being a human being, and that's pretty much as far as I got. Uh, Not much use to the police officer asking me, but what kind of response do you think I'd have received if the officer had asked me to describe the person that I'd seen And I replied with the kind of description that John gives. Just look down to verse 2. He who sat there on the throne had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. Well, officer, I remember that he looked like precious stones. It'd make for a pretty confusing police photo fit, wouldn't it? But the fact that you couldn't possibly draw what John describes in verse 2 is actually kind of the point. Because John's grasping for words to convey what God the Father looks like. Not because he can't remember, and this is the best he could do, but because God the Father has unmatchable majesty and beauty and glory. 
And that's the first of a number of features in Revelation 4 that mark out the one on the throne as being utterly unique. Let's have a think about some of them. Just look at verse 5 again, for example. From the throne, writes John, came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. I was very fortunate when I was around eight or nine to go on holiday to America with my family and have an abiding memory of experiencing thunderstorms that don't just get you soggy like the ones here do, but thunder that shook the building. Maybe you've experienced that yourself. The kind of thunder that you can feel vibrating its way all the way through your body. And it's terrifying. It's awesome in the truest sense of the word. And it makes you feel about this big, absolutely tiny and vulnerable. And that's the sense of what John sees coming from the throne. And actually, verse 5 might be ringing bells with you, not memories of foreign holidays, but echoes of the book of Exodus. When God met his people in Exodus at Mount Sinai, he appeared through thunder and lightning. He was so inapproachable, so other, people couldn't even look at him in all his glory or they would die. That's all the baggage that's conveyed by the description in verse 5. And it isn't just what John sees in the throne room that highlights God's uniqueness. It's who he sees. Just look back to verse 4 with me. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Now, we meet these elders again later in Revelation, where they, they, they represent a high order of angelic beings. And the fact that there are 24 of them mean, uh, 24 of them mean that they probably bear a correlation to all of God's people. 12 representing God's old covenant people, the 12 tribes of Israel, and 12 representing God's new covenant people, the 12 apostles. And they seem to be a pretty big deal in Revelation 4. Notice that they all have thrones on their own. They're all dressed in white. They have crowns of their own. And yet by verse 10, even they are casting those crowns down before the one seated on the throne. The elders aren't the only ones in the throne room. We meet more in verses 6 to 8. And the creatures we meet in verses 6 to 8 aren't the sort that you'd want to bump into down a dark alleyway, would you? Yeah, they're pretty kind of grotesque looking. They've got six wings and strange faces and eyes everywhere. Now again, we aren't told enough about the creatures to know for sure exactly what all of that imagery represents. But we don't need to bottom out all of those details to get the big picture. Because the point is that these beings, beings who are glorious beyond human imagination, serve one function. Verse 8. Day and night, they sing to the one on the throne. All of the beings in the throne room, the elders and the creatures, all bowing down before the one on the throne. And they're meant to convey that this throne isn't like any other. We've had Jasper and Carnelian. We've had peals of thunder. We've had creatures of all kinds worshipping. Let me just point out one last detail that triple underlines the point. Notice what the creatures sing in verse 8. 
they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. The reason they repeat the word holy isn't just that they've got a lot of time to kill or they're unimaginative and struggling to think of other words to sing. It's a superlative. So instead of singing, holy, holier, holiest, the creatures repeat the one word to make the same point. God is the holiest, and that just means that he is set apart. He is unique, unlike any other. And I'm sorry if it feels like I've labored that point, but can you see the, the building picture through the chapter? The jasper and carnelian, the thunder and lightning, the worshiping crowds, the song the creatures sing, all of it makes the point that the one seated on the throne is absolutely unique. He is grand and majestic and holy. And his throne is unlike any other throne. It's so much higher. Now, I do hope that all of that raises our eyes and raises our hearts to see and to feel just how wonderful and unique our God really is. But it is just possible that as you read all of it, it feels a bit abstract. I don't mean abstract in the sense of abstract art, although I guess if you painted what John describes, it might not be out of place in a modern art gallery. I mean abstract because as, as wonderful and as mind-blowing and as mind-bending as all of that is, it feels a little bit distant, a bit alien from our own experience. It's hard for us to have categories to get our heads around what's going on in the throne room, and that is part of the point. But wonderfully, in the last few verses of Revelation 4, that uniqueness, God's otherness, is illustrated in a really concrete way a way that we might find slightly easier to get our heads around. That's our next heading this evening. The one on the throne is the eternal creator. Just look at verse 11 again with me. The elders cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, by your will they existed and were created. The elders say that God, the one on the throne, is worthy of their praise. Why? Because he made everything. Now imagine you were recruiting for the job of Lord of History. Don't know where you would put the advert, but imagine you were recruiting for the job Lord of history, and as you read through one of the many application forms you would no doubt receive, imagine that on one form, the box used to describe relevant experience, all that was written was, I made everything. I think we found the right one for the job. The point is, God is absolutely qualified for the job as the one who determines the course of world history. He has proven it. And he is the only one in the universe who is. There is one who sits on the throne, one who holds the scroll, one who determines the course of world history, and he is the unique, eternal creator, God. 
Now, if you're listening this evening and you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian, I wonder what you make of all of that. That the world isn't just freewheeling its way to nowhere, nor is history, history ultimately decided by key events, but that there is one who determines where the world is headed. And he is the same one who made the earth and everything in it. And he's the same one who made you. Well, the following chapters of Revelation will show us that that has huge implications, not just for Christians, although it will do, but for you, for people who haven't trusted in Jesus yet. Because it's actually our refusal to accept that kingship, to accept our own creatureliness, that is humanity's biggest problem. Because it's nothing short of treason. That's the position that all of humanity stands in, rightly condemned. And as we'll see next week, there will be a reckoning for that condemnation. And yet, as we'll also see next week, there is hope. Wonderful, wonderful hope. Hope of being spared the judgment that should fall on us for our rejection of our maker and our king. And instead, the most wonderful welcome into an eternal relationship with him. That hope is all because of the work of Jesus. Now, if you've never thought about that before, can I ask you to do so now? Maybe you could start by reading an account of the life of Jesus. Maybe even the one written by the same guy who wrote Revelation, John's Gospel. But whatever you do, I hope you can see that from Revelation 4, we're not really allowed to get away with doing nothing. He made us. He made you. He claims to determine the course of history. And so to reject him, if you'll allow me to borrow an often misused phrase from our culture, to reject him is to stand on the wrong side of history. But remember that Revelation was initially written in order to help to steady churches, to steady Christians. So in the time we've got left, we're going to think about what implications Revelation chapter 4 has for Christians. Firstly, look up. It's worth asking the question, why does John give us this detailed description in Revelation 4? I touched on this earlier on, that the flow of the book wouldn't actually change all that much if we skipped from Revelation 4 verse 1 to Revelation 5 verse 1. The whole of chapter 4 is essentially setting the scene for what's to come. So why does John linger? It, well, let me return to the movie script illustration I used earlier on. And just to forewarn you, I'm about to stretch it well beyond breaking point. Uh, but please bear with me. Uh, imagine that you go to see a film in the cinema. You don't know anything about the movie before you go. Maybe you've been dragged along by a friend. And as the curtains roll back and the lights go down some of the opening credits start to roll in front of you. And as the name of the director and the screenplay writer starts to scroll up on the screen, it says it's Johnny Gilmer. It's me. I wrote it. I directed it. 
Now, you would have every reason at that moment to get up and walk out, probably to ask for your money back too. Why? Well, because it would probably have been filmed using my mobile phone. Uh, the main characters would all be Lego figures, and they would all sound suspiciously like me, just putting on different voices. You would know that the film was going to be poorly planned out, it was going to be incoherent, and probably a bit haphazard. But what if instead, as the credits begin to roll, the name of the director is Steven Spielberg, or Martin Scorsese, or your favourite film director? Well, that would give you confidence in what you're about to watch, wouldn't it? Well, John, and in fact Jesus, whose revelation this is, thinks we need to know not only the fact that there is a script, and not only to see that what's in the script, we'll see that over coming weeks if we read on, he wants us to meet the director and to meet the one who wrote the screenplay, the one who holds the scroll of human history. Why? Well, so that we would have confidence. Confidence that human history isn't haphazard, but that it belongs to the almighty creator God, the only one in the universe who's qualified for the job. Think of how that would help John's first readers to have that kind of confidence. Because what's described in Revelation 4 feels so far from how it must have felt and looked for them, mustn't it? Seven fragile churches in first century Turkey, in danger of, of, of moral and theological compromise, under the cost from persecution, and what it must look like on the face of it is that human history belongs to the powers persecuting them. Human history belongs to the people who are teaching things about God that aren't true. Because, well, they seem to be gathering more and more followers, and we aren't. Well, Jesus wants to show them that that is not the case. History belongs to the almighty God of the universe, the one on the throne. And the same principle applies to us. Because looking out on the world around us might lead us to think that well, the course of history, the course of Scottish history or UK history or world history is in the hand of governments and leaders. And if you want an illustration of that, think, for example, about the hate crime bill making its way through the Scottish Parliament at the moment. Now, of course, we engage with the, the democratic process as Christians, and thankfully many, many have. But on the face of it, it looks as though Christians' freedom to openly tell people the good news of Jesus, well, it rests in the hands of lawmakers, doesn't it? But Revelation 4 shows us that the one who sits on the throne is not government, is not leaders, is not lawmakers. And if you doubt that, just remember, neither Boris Johnson nor Nicola Sturgeon can claim to be the eternal creator God, can they? There is one who holds the scroll, one who determines the course of world history. And not only that, we can be confident that he is absolutely qualified for the job. So in times of trouble, look up. Remember who's on the throne. That's the first application. Secondly, bow down. Think back to Christians living in northern Nigeria again for a moment. 
Now, if the various groups who are persecuting Christians in northern Nigeria were ultimately the ones in control, why should Christians bother remaining faithful to Jesus, given what it's going to cost them? Why not just bow down to the extremists, renounce your faith, and save your neck? And our experience in Scotland is very, very different, but we might ask ourselves similar questions. When there's a conflict between being faithful as a Christian or doing what your boss would have you do or expect you to do, what your colleagues would expect you to do, how do you decide what to do? Well, if you're convinced that your boss is really the one who calls the shots, who holds your destiny in the palm of their hand, your ultimate destiny in the palm of their hand, then the decision's made for you. You're going to bow down to them. You'll do whatever they tell you to do. But the description of the throne room is meant to show us that there is only one to whom we should bow. Now, don't mishear me, because part of what it looks like to be a faithful Christian is to be a good employee, is to work hard, and to be respectful. But if you take Revelation 4 seriously, you'll see that when there comes a conflict, your boss is not the ultimate master. God is. He determines the course of history. Bow down to him and him alone. That's the second implication. Bow down. And thirdly and lastly, keep going. Remember that one of John's big intentions in writing the whole of this letter, the whole of this book, was to enable Christians, enable churches to be conquerors. That's the phrase he uses repeatedly in chapters 2 and 3, to be conquerors, overcomers, those who make it to the end, who remain faithful to the end. And the fact of the matter is that the tribulation that the church faced in first century Turkey will be the mark of the Christian church from the resurrection of Jesus until his return. We've lived in an unusually privileged position in the United Kingdom over a number of generations. But what is faced by the churches in Turkey is what we're meant to expect. But if you're a Christian... You serve the one who holds the scroll. You serve the one who determines the course of world history. The one who will put all things right. He is on his throne. And that means when you stand with him, you're standing with the Lord of history. And so let me just say, when you stand with the Lord of history you are not standing on the wrong side of history. Keep going. Remain faithful to the end. Be one who conquers. Let's pray together now. Our God and Father, we thank you for what we've seen tonight in Revelation 4. for the fact that you determine the course of history and that you are more than up to the job. We ask that for those of us who follow you, that knowing that, that seeing things as they really are would shape how we live. 
It would give us confidence to follow you. It would give us reverence before you above any other. And it would give us perseverance, would help us to keep going as Christians, even when things are tough. And we pray too for those who don't yet know you. And we ask that even this evening, as we've thought on your uniqueness, your godness, that someone would bow the knee before you, perhaps for the first time, would seek forgiveness for their rejection of you, and would so be welcomed into your eternal kingdom. We ask all of this knowing that you are the king of all things, and we do so in the precious name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen.